If you're blessed, say amen. amen. Do me a favor, everybody, take out your phone. Go ahead and reach in your purse, in your pocket, wherever it is. Take out your phone. Reach for that little button and hit silence on it, if you would, please. Help us do that. Thank you. I know that um, many of you, some of you, I'm sure, are on call, and you need to be able to be reached. Um, but I do appreciate you for being considerate of everyone else in the room as we just want to honor the presence of the Lord and honor one another and what I believe is a word that God wants to bring today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time. And we have two passages of Scripture to read. We're calling this today, Let's Do This with Biblical Economics. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Let's read together. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's our series text that we are learning, repeating, prayerfully hoping that this will get down into our spirits and that we will know this like the back of our hands, so to speak. Now, next text is for the message today. Five or six verses here out of the Gospel of Matthew. Let's read together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss, moth and rust doth... I, I, let's start again. I, I'm telling you. Still overwhelmed and uh, snotting and bawling here, so <laughs> let's try it again. Sorry about that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. King James says you can't serve God and mammon. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your amazing love and grace and mercy that you've poured out upon us. Thank you that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Thank you that that's our identity. I just acknowledge before you that I am nothing apart from you and I need you, Holy Spirit. I, I beg you today. I, I take hold in faith that you're going to move and minister to and speak to hearts, Lord, in ways that I don't even have understanding. You have the ability, God, to, to personalize and individualize the word that you've given me, but make it say something specific to every man and woman in this place. Let them leave with a hot coal off of the altar deposited into their heart personally with a word to them that says, Thus saith the Lord. We'll be careful to give you the praise. All of God's people said. Amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. We want to take a few moments today and um, very quickly introduce, I'm not going to do any reviewing from any of the previous messages, but this is called, Let's Do This with Biblical Economics. 
economics, economics, depending on where you were raised, how you grew up hearing it said, both are correct. The first question that I want to ask you today is an introductory question which says, what is economics? Economics, very simply, if we just Google it or we look it up in Webster's or Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, it's, it's basically the management, the allocation of resources. It specifically deals with money or wealth. Um, there are a lot of things that branch out of this. What we're hoping to do this morning is show you how we can begin to derive a biblical philosophy of one particular area. We've been talking for weeks about worldview, been talking about the components that make up a biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so this morning as we jump in, I want to just give you a quick understanding of what economics is. I, I, I have a degree in business, business administration, and I found out early on that I really loved the philosophy side of business more than I did the actual crunching the, the business calculus equations, and um, sat in the classes, and I loved the economics and the whole supply and demand and the theories that go with that and the philosophy behind it. And Because philosophy and theology and history are also inextricably related, that's just where my passion is, where my heart is. And everybody's not a, you know, a, a, a book nerd like I am, so I just please forgive me for that. I try to bring some stuff in balance because if I really cut loose to the depth that I'd like to, I'd probably just bore you all to tears, and so I have to keep all that in mind. Um, economics, the Greek word is oikonomia. It sounds almost like the English word, econom, economy, oikonomia. Oikonomia is the Greek word for dispensation, or it's the word for a household. It comes from the Greek, from the derivative, or rather, I'm sorry, from the root. It's derived from the root, oikos. Like the yogurt, the yogurt oikos is a Greek word, and it means to manage, but they're talking about managing your calories, okay? Oikos is a manager. It's someone who is in the house who is overseeing all of the business of that house. Um, with a show of hands, how many of you have gotten into watching the, the, the public PBS Downton Abbey on Masterpiece Theater? Some of you? Nobody. <laughs> so there's a few. Um, if you, since, since Sophie raised your hand, I'm not going to do my illustration on it then. But um, those of you who had, you're wondering now, Mr. Carson would be the oikos. He's running the whole house. Uh, a farm manager might be relative really to our agricultural economy around here in the South. Somebody who doesn't own the farm, but they're managing it for the owner. Okay. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you have a company and you've spread it out over a few states and you've got some city, some city, subsidiary companies, then you probably have somebody who is a local plant manager who's an oikos. They're the steward. They're overseeing. They, they're keeping the big picture of the whole thing running. So the, the, the oikos is operating and running the whole household. Okay, The economy is... The idea of how a society allocates resources, money, wealth, okay? So this morning what we want to do is try and take a few moments and dig into what the Bible has to say about economics because we are definitely 
marinated in a humanistic worldview regarding finance and how we do money. It wasn't until the 20th century where we even had the advent of credit in terms of credit cards. And a lot of the practices that we are wrapped up and involved in probably really wouldn't find themselves in a solid biblical foundation. And some of that has to do with why we're in the mess we're in as a nation. When we go back and we look, uh, and I don't want to go too deep in history, but historians divide the founding of America into two generations. The planting generation, which were those that showed up at Massachusetts Bay Colony and Plymouth and Jamestown with Captain John Smith and John Rolfe, and the Puritans and the Pilgrims that landed 1620, and then those in the, 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 the Massachusetts Bay Colony, particularly Puritans from England that were looking to try to come and build a city on a hill, building the kingdom of God in America, they came and brought with them what we call the Puritan work ethic. It was a 20th century economist, actually, who, who, who gave us, who coined that phrase, a Puritan work ethic. His name was Max Weber. And the Puritan work ethic was basically this. It was solidly built on a biblical ideal of economics, of personal responsibility, of work and reward. And they said, and this is quotable in terms of what the Puritans believe, they worked like it all depended on them, but they prayed like it all depended on God. And so when you see the passion for both of those, intense, passionate labor with a purpose in mind, focused, intentioned labor... But then they're devoting all glory to God as if to say, every breath that I have, every bit of ounce of strength that I have, and every fiber, muscle fiber of my body, I have it because God gave it to me. And so, God, I'm utterly dependent upon you. And, God, I'm going to work hard like it all depends on me. But I'm praying I'm going to give you all the glory because literally what I have is because you've given it to me. The resources I have, the seed in my hand to plant the crop for this year, Everything that I have, I'm going to work like it depends on me, but I'm going to pray like it depends on God. And let me just say to you, when you do that, you cannot help but succeed. Your business will go over. You, give, you, you set God in the CEO chair of your company, but you work your fingers to the bone, so to speak. And so you're dependent on God, and you're also recognizing that you have a, a level of personal responsibility. Um. Everything that we value in America is valued usually because of the principle of scarcity. Scarcity is the idea of there's just not a lot of it. I can hold up here in front of you a handful of dirt this morning, and then on this other hand, I can hold a handful of silver or gold or diamonds, whatever you want to add in this hand. Let's just say diamonds. Okay, so I have a handful of diamonds over here and I have a handful of dirt over here. Which of these hands is the most valuable? This one is, obviously, because that there are not as many diamonds as there is dirt, as much dirt. Okay? As a matter of fact, I could probably take one diamond that might be a carrot in terms of cut and color and brilliance and all of those things that make up a diamond, and I could probably take one diamond and buy a whole acre of this stuff that I'm holding in my hand, that it would just about almost be immeasurable, so much dirt that we couldn't even talk about in the hand. So a handful of dirt is fractions of pennies, of a penny, and one diamond can be 5000 10000 depending on the quality, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 of carrots, one carrot alone, okay? And so we're talking about scarcity. But what we must realize 
is that when it comes to the stuff that's on the planet, we have to look at this from a biblical perspective and not just from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective. And so from that, I want to hit the ground running right here uh, when it comes to creation. And I want to be able to give you some principles that I think are critical for us understanding that. Number one, out of the chute, and my intention today to do this, now that I'm through my intro, and it usually takes the longest, is to spend about a minute to minute and a half on each of these. Now, let me just say, this is no, in no way exhaustive. This is not exhaustive in the sense of having every scripture in the Bible. There are hundreds of each one that are all economically related uh, that, that would be categorized either under creation, fall, redemption of Christ, or the restoration that God's involved in in making all things new. So what we're going to try to do is just give you a little bitty tiny taste. This is like a taste testing. This is a heavenly wine and cheese party, and you're going to get a little taste of this and a little sip of this, and you're going to get to say, okay, I'm getting this. I hope that you will take this and become a student of God's Word and go home and begin to read and study and apply the Scripture to your life on a daily basis. This is how we would do this in any area. We need to do this in every area of life. We need to not just take a Dave Ramsey course on getting our checkbook in order and our bills paid on time, which is great. That's a great place to start. But we need to have a biblical understanding of the philosophy behind economics and what God will bless when it comes to nations because God has called the church to disciple nations. That doesn't just mean teach them how to sing a worship song. That means teach them how to build their nation with a godly intention toward the kingdom. It means how to teach people how to have marriages that will be kingdom-focused and blessed. It means to teach individuals how you can, you can take a dollar and with the favor of God on it, you can turn it into a business that will bless others. Some people have that gift. Let me, let me just, without embarrassing them, um, she was in the first service. Linda Alford is one of those people. She, she can take $100 and in a little bit of time turn it around and make it $10,000. The favor of God to build a business is on Linda Alford. Alex Blankenship is another one of these people. Just blessing of God, favor of the Lord to be able to start with a vision and build a team and to be able to uh, produce something that is blessing multiplied families out at Trans One. I'm, I'm thrilled to have him in this congregation and I look to him at times for team building aspects and leadership principles because he knows how to do it. That's his gift. There are others of you in the room that are, that are building successful businesses and you know that you've had to do what we said the Puritans did. You've had to pray like it all depends on God and you've had to work like it all depended on you. And all my business people said, Amen. So this morning, as we jump in, creation, number one, right out of the chute, because God created everything, He owns it all. Somebody say amen. amen. Because God created everything, He owns it all. Now, that means that I have to step back and take a perspective or a look at it from God's point of view and not that of a natural man, of that of a Darwinist or an evolutionist that basically just says all of this appeared by matter of chance. It is from the Darwinist standpoint that a Marxist, which is a communist or a hyper-socialist, is going to look at all the resources on the planet and basically say, we need to divide this all up so that everybody on the planet has the exact same amount, regardless of how hard you work or how much you've prepared or regardless of what kind of um, a preparation you've done in terms of schooling 
Uh, whether you even finished high school or not, everybody on the planet, after all, they all just ended up here and we're all humans, so everybody ought to have the same amount. That's not a biblical worldview of economics. Uh, and so we want to get into it. God owns it all. God has laid out some stipulations, some rules, some laws in the Scripture. Number two, as we jump into this, man was created to manage the planet and its resources. You commonly hear the word steward in the Bible. God has called us as men and women to steward the planet. God is up here. Creation is down here. Man is in between we, we, we don't believe New Age thinking that lifts man up to the level of God, nor do we believe Darwinian evolutionary thinking that reduces man down to the place of all the other animals. Man is in between. He is under God, but over the creation. He represents God to the creation. We are to take dominion. We're to subdue it as high as the birds fly, as deep as the fish swim, all of the animals all over the planet. All the species were to be showing creation care. There should be a godly biblical view of environmentalism. Now, because the church hasn't done it, the government has had to step in. And that's where we get in trouble. Uh, next week, I'm really going to be talking some about the whole spheres of authority between the three God-given institutions of home and family, local church, and civil government. And those are all supposed to be separate. Church shouldn't be running the government. We're not pushing for a theocracy. Don't anybody think that? The government shouldn't run the church. We're not pushing for statism. That's what's encroaching on us from our federal government. A nanny state. The most amount of authority really is invested in you as a parent in your home and family to be, take the responsibility of raising your children, raising up champions for the kingdom of God. The church is to be a prophetic voice into both to instruct the parents how to raise godly children and the civil leaders how to have a righteous civil government. But the government is supposed to lead, the church is supposed to proclaim the gospel, and the family is supposed to raise their children and educate them. Come on, somebody. Now that's a preview of next week. So we have spheres of authority that are not supposed to be overlapping, but they all are supposed to be operating. And out of those, men and women are supposed to godly, by godly examples, are supposed to manage. We're supposed to steward the planet and the resources. Number three, personal responsibility and work yields increase. The harder you work, the better off you should become. Now, sometimes it's difficult when the economy is messed up, when the national society, the, the culture in which we're part of is messed up in terms of the amount of taxes that the civil government is extorting out of the pockets of the moms and dads in their homes and families. Now, let me just say to you right now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because when we start to talk about fallen man, it'll be how he takes things away from us. So let me just hit the pause button on that and just go on through and I'll pick that up in a moment. Personal responsibility and work yields increase. That does not mean... Uh, that, well, let me, let me back up here. Personal work and responsibility means that the harder you work, the more you ought to be able to produce and increase. That doesn't mean that everybody's hour is equal the same in value. The person who has no initiative whatsoever and doesn't finish high school and maybe they've had a hard way to go 
And, and there are all kinds of stories. And this is where we're as the church is supposed to step in and help and encourage and lift up and, and help get people plugged into places where they can uh, get some further training and education to better themselves. But the guy who doesn't ever have the initiative, who doesn't want to do anything or make any self of, him, of himself, and he's flipping burgers or he's picking up the trash and he's making a couple of bucks more than a minimum wage, his hour of work is not as valuable as the guy who spent 22 years in school learning how to diagnose a medical problem, and he's a doctor, and he's gone to school, and he's gone through a specialty training, he's been a resident, and he graduates from medical school with a quarter of a million dollars in debt, and so his, his hour is worth 100 bucks. The other guy's hour is worth 8 or $9 dollars. Now, some of you might not think that's fair, but in a free market economy, in a society where you do still have personal choice and out of the decisions you make to better yourself according to your personal choices, then you're able to make money and work according to what you've been willing to prepare for. Some folks prepare for a long time and when they finally go to work, they make more money than I do. I can't be jealous of that. I can't be driven by a spirit of greed. Come on, somebody. And, and we must realize that the founding, the planting generation, those that landed here around 1600 and laid the groundwork of planting biblical ideas in this Puritan work ethic, so, to some degree were a little bit different for 150, 160, 170 years later when our founding generation came along with the likes of Sam Adams and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and so on and so forth. We could talk about the founders, 1776, 1787, they write the Constitution. About the time that our founders came along, there was a guy by the name of Adam Smith. Great name, don't you think? Adam Smith wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. And it lays out the whole idea of a free market economy, which is a biblical idea. America is not a command economy. We do not exist because we have central planners the way a, a, a Marxist system works. It is not a command economy where... Basically, the government provides you your housing and the government provides you your salary and everybody pretty much is on an exact even keel. When you do that, you take away the initiative from those who otherwise would have worked harder. Now, those of you who think socialism works, just let me tell you right now, there was a guy who was a professor of a classroom who basically said he's arguing against a bunch of students that are for it. And he said, okay, let's just do an experiment in our class this semester. Let's see what it works like. Basically, nobody's going to get the grade that they earned on the test, but we're going to just take a complete average, and whatever the grade is, we'll give the whole class that. So then at the end of the semester, everybody will get the average of what the class has done. So the first test comes around, and those that are eager to do well study, and they perform, and they make 100. They make A's. The others that are just sort of getting by, going to class a little bit, maybe slackers some, and they're making C's and D's. And the others who don't halfway show up but show up for the test that day, they didn't read the chapter, and they flunk. Everybody gets their tests back and everybody made a C because that was the average of the class. Now, the guys who didn't study loved it. But the folks who prepared were ticked off and they basically said, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to work like I know it's going to take my effort to put into it to work to make an A when I'm going to be pulled down by the rest of the group. So the next test they take, the grades don't go up, they go down because the top, the top producers don't produce. And they stop producing because they don't have any initiative. They're not going to be rewarded for how they produce. They, they earned an A but didn't make an A. And so they don't study. And guess what happens? The grades drop. And over the rest of the semester, the whole class continues to flunk. And the whole class got flunked that semester. This was an experiment conducted at the University of Michigan. 
So the professor basically said, now you see that socialism doesn't work. Now, it can spread the wealth equally, but it also spreads the misery equally. Now, the whole point is a biblical worldview is the idea that you can take personal responsibility. You can prepare and better yourself. You can work hard. You can pray like it all depends on God. You can work like it all depends on you. And there is this reward system that God has built into the universe. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. When you do the right thing, God has a way of blessing. You start reaping a crop of the seed that you've sown. Now, I've taken a little bit too long. I've got to move on. Number four, Adam's resources and God's intention. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that it's at this point where God looks at Adam and he says, your, your resources are literally unlimited, almost. Everything here is available to you. Look around. You can have, you can eat of anything in this place. Any of these animals, any of these herbs, any of these trees, fruit-bearing trees with the seed on the inside of them. God set him down into a place where everything he would possibly need was already there. There was not going to be a time when he would run out of oranges because every orange had a tree in compact called a seed on the inside of it that all he had to do, if he would take personal responsibility and work, it would yield more increase. God set him down into an unlimited possibility. The only limit was one tree in the middle of the garden, and God said, that's mine, leave it alone. And you know what happened. Adam evidently didn't disciple his wife appropriately. And we'll talk about this in a moment in the fall. Number five, some of you young men need to get the revelation of this. God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. I don't care how much you love my daughter. You don't have a job? It ain't happening, buddy, in the name of Jesus. And I'll load up a 12-gauge in the name of Jesus. This has nothing to do with my daughter, and right now she's texting me going, "If if you get off of this right now. I'm just talking about this as a principle. This is a principle. Any young man who wants to marry a young woman, get prepared. Get you a job. You know what? If you don't have a job, you have a job. Everybody on the planet has a job. It just might not be a paying one yet, but if you don't have a job, your job is to, the job is to find a job. I have never in my life gone for longer than two days without employment any time in my whole life. I started working in Cordell's Music Center right down here on West Broadway when I was 10 years old, demonstrating the pianos and selling the sheet music. I would play my little fat self. I'd run the cash register smile, wrap the stuff up at Christmas. I had me a little job. I was making $3 an hour. Man, I loved it. I mean, I'm telling you, I started doing that 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Always had, always had a job. Never been afraid to work. I will work hard. I don't know if you know this. This is not just, this is not just beauty oil that's up here. This is sweat. I'm working. And I do it because I love what I do and I'm not afraid to work. And the whole point is that God says, if I'll take personal responsibility, that he will bless what I put my hand to. Now, what happened with the fall of man? God created this. He owns it all. He said, look, your resources are unlimited. Now, some of you might say right now in a place of lack, oh, pastor, it would be so wonderful if I could say what Adam did, that I had been dropped down into a place where all my provision was there. And I just want to tell you, you are and you're not looking for it. There's a problem right there around there somewhere that in the middle of it, if you'll crack it open, it has a seed. And if you'll take out that seed and work it, pray like it all depends on God. Work like it all depends on you. God can make you a rich man if you will work that thing. Come on, somebody. There's, there are ways. There are means. If, if you will look, if you're not afraid to work, 
God wants to bless work. Those of you who think that heaven is a big vacation in a retirement home where there is no work, you have another thing coming. When you get up there, God's going to hand you a tool and say, here, I got this job for you to do. Oh, but pastor, I thought I was going to get a diaper and a three-string harp. (laughs) Bling. Bling. Work was in the garden before sin entered, before the curse came. Work will still be part of the restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. Some of you don't like that. Look at your neighbor and say, I got some work to do. Fall of man. Help me, Holy Ghost. Man, I got to really move. Sin entered because of disobedience over the resources. You know what happened? Eve said, "Mm, that looks good. I want to taste it. Sin entered. There was nothing magical about the fruit. It wasn't a red apple. And Adam was standing right there with her. He wasn't plowing the back 40 over there on the east plot of the garden. He was standing there right beside her is what the Bible says. She gave some to her husband who was there with her. Somehow somehow we've read right over that and and missed it. He was standing there. She committed an act of commission, a sin of commission by doing what she shouldn't have. He committed a sin of omission by not speaking up and saying, no, honey, don't listen to that stinking, lying, low-down, no-good snake because we trust God. This is what God said. Adam didn't speak up and do what a good husband is supposed to do. He committed the silence of Adam. And too many times we husbands just sort of let things go because we want to keep peace when we need to be lovingly representing what God said. Now, you can't represent what he says if you don't know what he says, brothers. So you've got to be men of the word. You've got to study the word. And you've got to love your wives like Christ loved the church. If you'll do that, there's not a woman in the room who won't gladly submit and respect and honor the man who will love her like Christ loved the church. Don't shout me down, ladies. Come on now. Sin entered because of disobedience over the resources. Number two, Adam and Eve were deceived by a worldview other than God's. He came slithering up. Hebrew word for serpent is whisperer. And he comes and he literally plays and lays the seeds of humanism, putting man at the center, making man the standard for which the universe literally becomes focused around. And you know, let me just tell you, this whole thing focuses on God. He's the center of this thing. I am not. He is God, I am not. That's the greatest revelation that most of us can ever have. There is a God and I am not Him. Number three, fallen man will always steal what he hasn't rightfully earned. Adam took what wasn't his and sin entered because of disobedience. Now, the Big Ten gives us, the Big Ten, I'm talking about the commandments. God takes time out of the Big Ten and He dedicates one of them to the protection of personal property. Thou shalt not steal. And because we are biblical Christians, we believe in personal property. The Marxist doesn't believe in personal property. They say literally this whole problem is an economic problem, that sin is an economic issue, and that if we can take all the wealth away from all those that are holding it and we can equally dispense it over the planet, this is the the utopia of communism. And what we know is that it doesn't work. The Bible supports the idea of personal property because if you don't own something, you don't take as good of care of it. The person who rents a house doesn't take as good of care as the person who owns the house. And all my owners in here said something. Come on, help me out. It's just a fact. And when you own something, when you pay for it, it's, I've told both my children, look, you start paying for that cell phone, you'll take better care of that cell phone. 
I've had four cars that my son has gone through. He's paying for this one. And, you know, he's concerned about making sure that oil gets changed on time. (laughs) Oh, man, somebody dinged me. Now, the other one, man, he could just be literally dung, ding, dang, all over the place, whatever. (laughs) But, you know, when you start paying for something, you have personal ownership in it. It's a kingdom principle. You take better care of something that you're footing the bill for. Personal responsibility comes in again. Fallen man will always take, will steal what he hasn't rightfully earned. God says, thou shalt not steal. We can't take what's not ours. And I believe that works on a governmental level as well. When we talk about the wrestling problem we have with taxes here, it's not just about what you're going to pay April the 15th here in two blinks of an eye around the corner on the calendar. But it's the fact that every time you pull into the gas station, a buck fifty of the $3.50 a gallon gas you're paying is paid in taxes to the government. You're talking about personal taxes. You're talking about property taxes. You're talking about sales tax on everything you buy and use tax. Folks, when, what I told you here two or three weeks ago was that Sam Adams, the original guy who threw a tea party, threw the tea overboard for one twentieth of the amount of taxes that we pay. And I'm not just talking about your personal property, or I'm sorry, your personal income taxes. By the way, this government was able to exist for 150 years before we ever had to have one. Personal income tax didn't get signed into law until 1917 under Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at the time. How did the country make it? We are taxed and taxed and taxed and taxed. And I'm going to tell you something. Because the people of God have not obeyed the law of God, we've not given God the first fruits, the tithe. God's put a government over us that continues to extort more and more and more from us. Don't shout me down. I'm telling you the truth. We don't have a biblical view of economics. Number four, how we conduct our business is an indicator of our character. Proverbs 11.1, 1, the Bible says, a false balance is an abomination of the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. When the children of Israel were trading in the marketplace on a bartering system, they would have weights, a bag with some, something heavy in it, and they knew that it exactly weighed the same amount as maybe a sea of flour or a jira of flour, using Hebrew terms. Today, we have a whole bureau of the federal government that is called the Federal Bureau of Weights and Measures that secures that a quart of oil is actually a quart, that, that, that a pint of milk is a pint, that a gallon of gas, when you pump it at the pump, that you get every drop you're supposed to get that is actually a gallon. And it has a seal there that, that has been federally supported by the local state on the state level that says that that gallon, that pump is actually pumping out an exact gallon when it says it in terms of the, the numbers that are rolling there. Now, what does that have to do with how I do my business? Well, it means that when you say that you're doing something honestly and you're producing a good product, it means that you need to be following through. You need to actually be doing a good product. You don't need to be cheating people because of a service you say they need when they don't need it or a product that they should buy when it's really not the thing that's going to fix their situation. Are you hearing me? How we conduct our business, are you doing it honestly? Uh, The people that are working hard, are you paying them a good solid wage? Are you taking care of the folks? You know, and let's, let's talk about it the other side. The guys who are the entrepreneurs who have completely funded uh, uh, an idea and stepped out here and taken a dollar and turned it into 10 and took the 10 and turned it into 100 and they keep planting the seed over and over and over again and last year's profits get rolled into this year and you keep growing your business and you're trusting God, 
relying on him like it all counts on him, but working like it all counts on you, and you keep growing that business. Let me just say to you, as an employee of that guy that you're jealous of because he's doing so well, realize he's the one who's laid down his life in a risky economy, and he's invested everything he has. When you show up to work for him, do you have a right attitude, and do you give him a full day's work? Are you spending half the day on Facebook? It's quiet in here. Are, 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 we, are, we, are we doing, are we appreciating, are we praying for our bosses, the people that are employers? That is the avenue that God has a means of bring, being able to put food on your table. He is blessing you through that man or that woman who owns that business. Don't badmouth them. Don't curse the very hand that's feeding you. Bless them. Pray for them. Show up with a good attitude. Act like a Christian ought to act. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Number five, all kinds of evil are connected to this root, this love of money. The root, the root of all evil. This thing is intertwined with every other kind of evil. People do crazy things because they love money more than they do people. People showed up at the coast of Africa and ripped people from their families and brought them over here and enslaved them for 400 years because they loved money more than they did people. And long before the white European man showed up, there were, there were uh, Islamists that had been doing it for 600 years. We need to get our history straight. Now, we all need to own it. We need to say, hey, listen, this wasn't right. God, forgive us. Let's reconcile in Christ and realize that grace is bigger than race and all of the problems that we have that are some degree are based on economics. Fallen man will always take what doesn't belong to him. He will rip people apart because he loves money more than he does a fellow human being. But thank God it doesn't all stay in that place. Let me just say this to you before I move on to the redemption of Christ. You don't have to have any money to love it. You can be poor as Job's turkey, as my granddaddy used to say. You can be jealous of everybody that's down the street from you that's got more than you do. Because there's, let me just tell you, I've tried to teach my children this. There's always going to be somebody that's got more and there's always somebody that's got less. And you don't need to let yourself be identified by what you've got. Because it can all be taken away in an instant. Redemption of Christ. This is what Jesus came and did and he turned the whole thing upside down. Jesus laid it all down. Though he was rich, he became poor. The Bible says, for your sake, so that you might become rich. I believe that that is in every aspect. I don't believe it's just spiritual riches. I believe Jesus Christ had everything that could possibly be described in an affluent place. And he laid it all down and he came down here and he identified with the poorest of the poor so that he could show people that you can come up out from underneath the curse. the curse. The curse of sin and death includes poverty and ignorance and lack. Sin, death, all of the disobedience, all of those things are wrapped up in the curse. God does not look at you and think that you're spiritual because you don't have anything, because your, your heart can be filled with sin with not a sin in your pocket. Your spirituality has nothing to do with the status of your checkbook. You can have a million dollars in the account and your heart can be right with Jesus. You can have nothing and you think you're spiritual because you're living in a, in a kind of an impoverished lifestyle and a sacrificial lifestyle and your heart can be eaten up with greed and malice and envy toward a brother or sister. And the, the converse of that is true as well. Just having money is not going to make you happy. The, the tragedy of it is, is that so many very wealthy people are some of the unhappiest, most overly medicated, depressed people on the planet. You can be happy with nothing. You can be happy with everything. You can be unhappy with nothing. You can be unhappy with everything. 
It changed my life when I was 18 years old and I went on a missions trip down to Mexico and I saw little people who had nothing. They didn't have a pot. No, I better not use that illustration. They didn't have... They, had, they were poor. They were so poor. And we did uh, uh, an outreach. We were giving out cabbage heads and two or three cabbage heads in a Walmart bag. And people would come up with tears in their eyes and say, Gracias, Señor. Glory a Dios. Glory to God. And with tears streaming down my cheeks as a little spoiled freshman at Arkansas State University wearing a Ralph Lauren polo. I thought everything had to have a horse that I bought when I was 18, 19 years old. Now that I could not care less. I'm proud. I I brag by telling people, oh, I got this on the sale rack at Gap, and I paid $3 for it. (laughs) Matter of fact, this sweater that I have on is one of those Gap purchases. Number two, money is a test for the handling of greater riches. Jesus said it himself. How am I going to give you greater riches if you can't even handle earthly mammon? Number three, our identity is in Christ where we have been blessed with everything. Listen, it's not about what you have, what you don't have. Your identity is in Christ. It's not, about if, it's not about how great a job you have or the one you lost yesterday. If you're a Christian, he is your provider. Your identity is in Christ. That is who you are. You're a child of the living God. How you relate to money is a heart locator. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Dr. Billy Graham used to say it this way. You want to show me your heart for Christ? Show me two things, your checkbook and your calendar. What are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your time? Nothing wrong with having hobbies. Nothing wrong with having nice things, great cars, house with three-car garage, four-car garage, speedboat backed into one of them, some sea-doos, $500 putters on the golf course. Get yourself completely decked out to go up to Vail and ski. You know, nothing wrong with any of that stuff, so long as that stuff doesn't have you. That's not, none of that stuff should be a status. Your status should be that you are in Christ, that Christ is in you, and you're identified by the fact that you are a child of the living God. It's not haves and have nots. It's are you in Christ or are you not? Come on, somebody. How you deal with it, how you relate to money is a heart locator. I want to say this to you right now. If a $20 bill looks huge going in the offering plate, but it looks tiny at the grocery store, then you have the spirit of mammon working in your life. I'm going to say it again for the hearing impaired. If a $20 bill looks huge to give it in the offering plate and it looks tiny at the grocery store, then mammon is working in your thinking. And you're going to have to break the curse because there has to be a stable weight and measure. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Number five, Jesus makes no statement about anything else like he does about mammon. He, he doesn't say what he says about money. He says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. He doesn't make that statement about anything else because all the others are obvious. You can't serve God in power. We know that. You can't serve God in lust. That's a no-brainer. But there's something so deceptive about money. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. You will love the one and hate the other. You will be devoted to the one. You will despise the other. Because Jesus himself talked about the deceitfulness of wealth. So many people these days are so worried about the mark of the beast on their head and in their hand. And the latest, most ridiculous thing floating around Facebook is that Obamacare is going to make every one of us get a chip in our forehead or in our arm connected to our medical records. Please tell those people it's not true. And again, you know, I don't agree with some of his policies, but Barack Obama is not 
the Antichrist. Okay? We will finish this administration and we will live to tell about it. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, I'm so glad to hear that. The deception has come because what you don't realize is that the mark is in your thinking and because it's in your thinking, it's in your actions. It's the Adamic mark. It's the, it's the fallen nature of Adam. And until I let God renew my mind, I've got to eradicate that wrong thinking. And until my thinking gets renewed in what we're preaching about this whole series, by testing, you discern what is the perfect, good, and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm trying to get a biblical worldview. I'm trying to get the mind of Christ on the inside of me to be released. It's already there because He came in me. Now I just need to let it be. And if I can begin to think differently, I'll begin to act differently. I'll no longer have the mark of the beast in my thinking or on my actions. I'll have the mark of God turned to a different chapter in the book of Revelation. They never preach on that one. There were those who were marked with the mark of God in their forehead and the mark of God on their hand. That's the one I want. I want to think like the Lord called me to think and I want to act like God's called me to act. And it has nothing to do with the computer in Belgium that they scared us all about in the 1970s, which my laptop sitting in my office right now has more power than that great big three-story office building computer in 1976 was supposed to have. Gosh, how much nonsense we've gotten scared about and believed. Are you hearing me this morning? We need a biblical view of economics. Finally, restoration. Have you gotten anything out of this? Let's roll it, roll it out this morning. Let's finish. Number one, the upside down kingdom. It's better to give than to receive. Somebody said, yeah, you just hadn't really received a lot, have you, Pastor? No, I, I like to get gifts. But I'm at the age, I'm 52. I, don't, I really don't even ask for much anymore. At Christmas, I just basically said, look, get me some socks and certain kind of underwear. Give me some boxers and, and I'll be okay. Maybe that's too much information for y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't have gone to the second part of the toll right then. But I was so excited when I got a whole case of, of Under Armour little socks, little low-cut kind. And I, had, I had a dozen white pair and a dozen black pair. And I'm, man, I'm going to the gym, this is great, so excited. And, and, and so it was a cold night in January, and I start digging around where that whole case of socks are. And I can't find one anywhere. What's up with this? I go to my drawer, and there's none in there. And, and I go to the kitchen and I said, y'all, y'all gave me a, y'all gave me a dozen pairs of, of black low cut, low top, uh, under armor socks and a dozen white pair. What, where are they? And I looked down and there was a pair on Dawn's feet and a pair on Abby's feet. I couldn't find mine anywhere. <laughs> Stole my stuff. <laughs> Fallen man will always take what's not there. <laughs> No, I'm a dad. I'm a provider. I, we just got a big old ha-ha laugh over that because they had on socks. My feet were, were cold. I couldn't find my sock. Uh, but it's better to give than to receive. So we, we had the best laugh over that. Since then, I've, they've sort of found their way back to my drawer now. But Number two, not cold anymore. That's right. Number two, it's the Lord who gives you the power to get wealth. What does that mean? Now, you turn on the prosperity preachers and they tell you that that means that if you give them $100, God will give you a hundredfold return of that and send you a $10,000 check. And they're like playing, they're playing the lottery. That's a heavenly slot machine. You know, you plug it in and you pull the thing and you expect to go ding, 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 give me a 777. Cherries all the way across, whatever it is. I don't know. I've been down to Tunica one time to eat. Never, I can honestly say I've never plugged a quarter in a slot machine. Not that it's a sin if you, you know, take five bucks and just go have fun. 
But when you, you stand there, and I'm, I'm going to chase that rabbit because I've already said it. Forgive me. But when you go back to the ATM and then draw out your check and then you lose it too, then yeah, it's a sin. It's wrong. I've been one time to eat, and we went, we went and I said, I, I can't do this. It's just, ugh, it's not for me. So I'll leave that alone. Getting, the power to get wealth means God has given breath in my lungs, and he's given strength in my body, and he's given soundness of thinking in my mind to be able to get out here and carry on and finish a job to completion and step back and say glory to God for what you gave me the power to accomplish. Power to get wealth. Bless your employers. They're the avenues which God is blessing you through. Number three, generosity breaks the power of mammon over your life. Until you learn to give and be generous with other people, you can't break that power over you that says a 20 going into the offering is huge, but a 20 at the grocery store is tiny. Till you can obey the, the prompting of the Lord to bless somebody that's in greater need than you are. Luke 6.38 says, Given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will men bring the blessing of the Lord and dump it into your lap? Number four, godliness funds faithfulness while mammon funds the curse. Wow. That's a whole message in itself. When you read Genesis 25 verse 5, it says Abraham gave everything he had when he died to Isaac. He disinherited Ishmael. When you read Proverbs, it says the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Genesis 49, the inheritances are not the same. I realize I'm opening up a can of worms and then I'm going to sort of smooth over it with the last one with take care of the poor here before we go. And we haven't even scratched the surface when it really comes to trying to build a biblical view of economics. But I just want to say this because this is an American idea, but it's not a godly Bible idea. The idea that in America, that's, that husband and wife work together and build a business and maybe they, they make it to the status of being a millionaire and they raise four children. They've got a couple of them that are godly children one of them that's sort of indifferent, one of them that's a complete rebel. The idea that the right thing for you to do is to take that money that you've worked for your whole life and just to divide it up four ways because, after all, as a parent, you do love those children equally. But the idea of funding every one of them the same amount is not a biblical idea. It is under the curse. The inheritances were not the same. There are biblical laws that relate to inheritance. God disinherits ungodly children. It's really quiet in here. Mammon will fund the curse. Now, if you've got a, if you, you have a couple of children and they've been good to you, they've been faithful and respected and honored and loved you and have cared for you to your last days and you've got one out there that's just been a crackhead and a drug addict, no offense, people in here have gotten delivered from that, but they never, ever, ever turn their, their life around. They don't cry out to God and get some deliverance from that. And you think, I have, I have a personal friend whose dad passed here a few years ago. He's just three years younger than I am. And when his daddy passed, he got an inheritance of $55,000. And within two months, he had smoked every bit of it up in crack. And he lives in this town. I know him. I won't say his name. Obviously. It's a, it's, it's a curse. And when you give something to somebody that their whole lives they've shown you and demonstrated to you that there's not a godly bone in their body, you are participating in the curse when you fund that. You take your funds you've worked for your whole life and you fund faithfulness. You fund the blessing where you know they're going to bless generations to come after you. Come on, don't shout me down. Come on, somebody. This is the truth. It is the Word of God. 
There's nothing in the Bible that says, well, I've got four kids. I have to give them all the same because the scripture says, let me just tell you this. God does it. The Bible says ungodliness, wickedness will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've got so much messed up in our thinking about how we handle money in America and it's no wonder we're in the mess we're in. God can love everybody, but he does not fund everybody the same way. If he disinherits the wicked and says they're not going into the kingdom of God, don't you think that same principle ought to apply to economics as well? You've got a kid that's squandered everything you've ever given to him or her and you're going to turn around and trust him with the business? Solomon says this is just vanity to work all your life and heap it up and then give it to somebody who's just going to fritter it all away. That's nonsense. Warren Buffett, who's a quintillion zillionaire or whatever, however rich he is, set every one of his kids up in a business, but when it came to giving his money away, his billions, he didn't do it. He's, he's giving it all to philanthropy to make sure that the poor and people are being taken care of and education. Finally, we finish this morning. Take care of the poor. Proverbs 19, 17, the Bible says, He that gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay them all. One translation says with interest. You, you can never turn around and hear the voice of the Lord instruct you to bless and help somebody and God not make sure that what you have need gets met. He's going to take care of you. When you take care of the widow and the fatherless, the orphan, those that are really truly poor and can't pull their way out of it because the church hasn't done what it was called to do, the government has had to step in to this nation and that's why we're in the mess we're in. If every Christian in America actually tithed into the local church, there is no way. It's indescribable what we could do to be able to minister to people in need. We've begun doing that more and more here at Victory with brand new warm coats on the backs of children whose families can't afford to buy them. Taking fans out in the summer to homes where elderly people could sometimes die of heat exhaustion. It's just a beginning we had about four outreaches last year. We're looking to kind of up that this year because if you're giving, that we've already, the money's already there. We're, we're gearing up and making plans. We want you to participate with us. So when we go bless somebody, you can feel that way down in your heart where it says it's better to give than it is to receive. It does something way down in your heart. James 1.27, and I'm closing. Pure religion and undefiled is to take care of the widow and the fatherless. We have to remember them. We must take care of them. This is not about a political issue. This is not about a Democrat, Republican issue on any of the economic issues in this nation. It's about we need to cry out and get God give us some revelation on how we're supposed to handle our finances, not only personally, but as a nation. Because they can't figure it out in Washington. It's a mess. If we ever needed revival before, we need revival now. And we need some people that will stand up with some wisdom and say, it's just got to stop. You quit spending when your money runs out of your home. The government needs to figure out they can't keep doing what they've been doing the last 25 years. Or we're going to have our grandchildren inherit the curse of all this debt. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, thank you in the closing moment of this service that you bring to bear every, each and every one of us the amazing investment that you have given to us. Jesus Christ did an indescribable thing for us. He was rich and yet he became poor. He poured all of that out 
and he came and he identified with the poorest of the poor on this planet. He was mocked, he was bruised, he was beaten. He ended up being identified with the criminals because the sin of the world was poured out upon him as if he were a criminal. And the godly suffered for the ungodly, the just for the unjust. Jesus, we're overwhelmed this morning at your love for us because the Bible tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, thank you that you're making an investment right now. You are injecting grace and faith. You're giving gifts into the hearts of some people right now. You're knocking on their heart's door. You're breathing life into deadness, into numbness of spiritual death of people that are in this room who've never come to know you as Savior and Lord. And thank you that in that moment you're also giving faith so that they can reach out and take hold of that gift by grace. I can't work hard enough to get out of hell. I can't work long enough to get into heaven. I can't earn it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus, thank you that You've set me down into a place where everything I need is already there. Thank you, Jesus, that now you're you're giving grace and faith to somebody in this room. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask you just very briefly in this moment, anybody ready to cross the line of faith and say, Jesus, come into my heart, save me. Jesus, save me, I trust you. That's all you need to know right there. Jesus, save me, I trust you. Anyone who would like to be included in this prayer, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? I'm not going to embarrass anybody, call anybody out, but I want to pray for you. Yes, one on that side. Anyone else this morning? Yes, see that one? Another one? Yes. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for these who've raised their hands this morning for coming to this important juncture of their life, a crossroad. Thank you, Lord, that as they sense the love of God, the the outrageous grace and mercy that's being poured out upon them right now. Thank you, Lord, for a life change. Lord, for breathing life into their deadness. And Lord, they reach out now in a new ability to choose you and to say, Jesus, save me. I trust you. Make those words your own in your own heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, you do the work that no man can do and you touch us and change us and make us your children, you birth us from above that we might be born again. For all the believers that are in the room right now, you just need God to give you a fresh understanding of what's happening in your own finances and the economy of your time and your treasure. If anything in this morning spoke to you and you're just saying, God, I need a fresh start. I need a revelation of your blessing in my life. I have lack and I want to break poverty. Lord, I have a need. I need direction. This business that I'm in. God, I've been working hard. I, I make a new commitment to pray like it all depends on you. I believe the Lord is speaking different things to folks in this room about some of the things we've said economically. If that's you, just lift your hand. I want to pray for you. Lord, in the name of Jesus, different ones around the room right now, meet every need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Show us how to give you first, God, the first fruits, and bless you and take care of the poor bless our families and train up young men and women to be champions how to handle finances in the next generation God help us show us Lord from your word how we can get a clear picture of what the Bible says about how we're to handle money Lord we thank you that 
even though it's, it's dangerous, it is a tool and you will show us and teach us how to use money for the glory of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, amen. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Hallelujah. A couple things real quick that I want to